are studying sections 109 and 110 today. The Kirtland Temple is finally being dedicated. It's a good time. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in this. I'm interested in talking about this appearance of Jesus and what we can learn about it. So, Priesthood keys. Yeah, that's good too. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> so welcome. Before we get into our discussion, should we follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. So today we're studying sections 109 and 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In these sections, we're going to see that the Kirtland Temple has been completed. Joseph Smith is going to ask that the Lord accepts the temple. He's also going to ask that God's glory will be round about it and that angels will be there to help them. So the Lord appears in glory in the temple and he says he will speak to patrons in his own voice and that tens of thousands will rejoice because of these blessings. In addition to Jesus Christ, Moses, Elias, and Elijah are also going to come to the temple and they're going to restore priesthood keys. So we're going to focus our discussion on three topics today. Uh, first, the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Second, seeing Jesus Christ. And third, the Lord's keys. So in order to help us to dive deeper into the scriptures and understand these scriptures in better context, we have invited our wonderful friend, Mark Ellison. Mark, would you come join us up here? Welcome. Mark, it's so great to have you. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, Mark, you are an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. Right. Um, you also, your research focuses on the intersection of Christian texts, artifacts, iconography, and practices. Mm -hmm. So, break it down for us. What exactly does that mean? It means I like looking at artifacts and archaeology and then reading ancient Christian texts and, and just bringing them into dialogue with each other and trying to get at the... Uh, the lived experience of just ordinary Christians of late antiquity. I just find that so fascinating. It, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's a turning of my heart to my fathers and mothers of mm. the ancient Christian past, and mm. I, I feel like they're my spiritual ancestors. Excellent. Great. Love it. Um, so before we get on our discussion, I'm wondering, was there, was there anything in these sections that kind of jumped out at you as especially meaningful or significant or things you think we need to know going into it? Oh, there, there's a lot of fine details that are just profound, uh, but just the, taking a step back and looking at the two sections together, we have prayer and answer. Mm -hmm. And the two of those together, I, I, I think is really interesting to think about that the, the saints have come to this prayer and this dedication with, out of so much uh, sacrifice and hard work to build this temple. And they, they come to the Lord in prayer. And then the Lord answers so abundantly, uh, perhaps even beyond what Joseph and the saints were expecting. Uh, but th they did this in faith, and the Lord just pours out great blessings on, mm -hmm. on the saints of Kirtland. And the two of those together, I think, are really interesting to think about. So maybe we can get right into our discussion and talk a little bit about the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Can you give us a little historical context for what's going on here? Yeah, so we are finally in the time frame where the saints have been working on this for a good three years now. The, the original command comes in 1833, and now the saints have actually fulfilled the covenant of the Lord. And you'll see in section 109, this is a dedicatory prayer that Joseph has been, has been writing, and the Lord actually confirms that this is a prayer that he is pleased with. It's kind of an interesting section of the Doctrine and Covenants because a lot, of, a lot of the sections comes a revelation from the Lord. But in this case, Joseph wrote it down and the Lord actually gave his stamp of approval. And it's interesting as well, when you see this in section 109, the very first thing that Joseph does in this, in this dedicatory prayer is he thanks the Lord. So they put forth all this effort. They have worked and they have put all this money and there have been so many struggles through this. And finally, Joseph, the very first thing, the very first word in this dedication is, thanks be to thy name, O Lord God of Israel. So during this time frame, from about January to May, there have been more angels seen, more spiritual experiences, more preparation in a sense spiritually for this uh, dedication than any other time in church history. 
And so again, we, we are now prepared. The Lord is going to um, not only come and visit his temple, as we're going to talk about here in a, in a little bit, but we're also going to see this visitation of, of other um, prophets that are going to come to their prophet. There's, there's so much as we go through these sections that we're just going to continue to discuss as we talk about the Kirtland Temple and this dedication. So one thing we learn in here is that the Lord's house is sacred space, right? Um, did you get a sense for what he expects and doesn't expect of those who enter it? I had a couple of thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at about verse 20, and that no unclean thing shall be permitted to come into thy house to pollute it. There we have a, a clear expectation of preparation, proper preparation to come into the temple. Um, and that's important. Uh, it, it, you, you have to take the prerequisites for a, cl- a certain class in school for that class to be of value and to be an edifying good experience. Mm-hmm. In the same way, to go to the Lord's house requires a certain preparation of our, ourselves spiritually, intellectually, and, and, and in uh, the behavior of our lives mm-hmm. so that uh, we're ready for it. No unclean thing shall be permitted to come into thy house to pollute it. It also made me think of Latter-day Saints I know who are, are very self-conscious about their own worthiness and they, they feel anxiety and, and get down on themselves about, you know, am I really worthy uh, to go to the temple? And, and for them, uh, sometimes this becomes a source of anxiety. And it was interesting to me, the very next thing the Lord says, uh, or Joseph says in his prayer, uh, verse 21, and when thy people transgress, not if, yeah. <laughs> but when. Uh, it's, and it's built into the plan. It's understood that we're going to mess up sometimes. When thy people transgress any of them, they may speedily repent and return unto thee and find favor in thy sight and be restored to the blessings which thou hast ordained should be poured out upon those who shall reverence thee in the, this thy house. And uh, verse 34, about halfway through, as all men sin, forgive the transgressions of thy people and let them be blotted out forever. So to your question, uh, what does the Lord expect and what does he not expect? He doesn't expect our perfection. He expects our faith and repentance mm-hmm. to come to this house and let it be a house that, that builds us up. I, I don't think he would want us to see the Lord's house, Kirtland, or today uh, and feel discouraged, but to feel built up yeah. uh, and encouraged that this can be something that strengthens our faith and repentance. Yeah, absolutely. We have, we have a, a question from our, from our audience at home we could go to regarding the temple. Hi, we're the Belinskis. We live in Missouri, and our question has to do with this scripture. Organize yourself, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. So our question is, what is a house of glory, and how can we create our homes into houses of glory? That's a great question. What do y'all think? Yeah, Amber. Well, I think one of the most glorious things our family can uh, have in our homes is the spirit. And I think a house of glory, um, back to the toxic perfectionism that was mentioned, does not mean that it's perfectly clean or that your children are all silent during scripture study every single night. Um, But I do think it means that you have scripture study Um, and that you continue to try, that you pray as a family and as individuals, that you study these lessons of come follow me and that you bring the glory of the Lord into your home, that you worship him and you invite the spirit. Mm -hmm. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, Paul. Um, 
I'll just add one little thought to that. I, when they asked that question, I was thinking, well, what is glory um, in this context? And it reminded me of when the Lord says, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. And so I think for us too, in our homes, as we're doing things that help us to know the Savior better and to know Heavenly Father better, to bring about eternal life um, of our family, that is a house of glory. I assume is based on how close you're sitting together that you two are perhaps married, right? Yes, and we have two wonderful children. And I think that um, part of that glory is raising your children to know the truth and to mm. appreciate the gospel light that can make our lives so much more beautiful. Excellent. Glory in the scriptures is usually connected to light and truth. Right. It's interesting with both of you, Amber, you're saying the light and truth, and then Paul, you're talking about the honor of, of the Lord, and it's, you kind of see both of those in the scriptures as the work of the glory, the honor of God, usually in perspective of eternal things, and then the light and truth that we're trying to gain as well, which yeah. is very real in temples, both yeah. of them. And I would argue too that I think is, I mean, I, th I agree with everything you've said. At the same time, I think there's a sense in which temples should be distinct from our homes. I'm not aware of any kind of scriptural commandment that we need to make our houses houses of glory, although I would agree with everything you say. Um, I think one of, the value of the, one of the values of the temple for me is that it's, it's, a, it's a place that's set apart. It's a place where we can leave the rest of you know, the world behind. Um, so I think there's some value in recognizing that this, the temple is a special place set apart for a special uh, purpose that perhaps we can't fulfill in our homes as well. And our homes can be similar to temples, but at the same time, I mean, you're talking about how you have children. We, we all have children too, and you, you don't see a lot of Hot Wheels on the floors of the temple, right? <laughs> and, and maybe we don't see a lot of cleaning up after the one-year-old and things of that nature, but at the same time, we can also make our homes a place of security and a, a place of refuge and, and a place of glory, but perhaps in a different way. We're teaching a, a one-year-old how to, how to walk and talk versus perhaps older people understanding more about that light and truth, but in a different context, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this has been a great uh, discussion about the dedication of the Kirtland Temple and what we can learn from it. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the, the appearance of Jesus and specifically seeing the Savior. So one of the reasons I'm grateful you're here, Mark, is that, um, I mean, your area of expertise is, you're an art historian of early Christian art and iconography. And um, I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about how depictions of Jesus um, have evolved over time? Or maybe what, what do we know about how Jesus actually would have looked like? Okay, well, let's talk about, those are two separate questions. So let's talk about the, the second one first, what, okay. what Jesus looked like historically mm -hmm. during his mortal life. Um, and, and of course, here what we have in section 110 is a, a description, a prophetic, poetic description of the risen Christ. Uh -huh. And that's a different issue. And so uh, when we're talking about Jesus during his mortal life, um, the, the scriptures are, they're, they're roughly silent on, on this mm. uh, issue. There's no overt description in the New Testament about what he looked like. However, there are some implications that he may have looked just like an ordinary Middle Eastern man of the first century. Mm -hmm. um, and there, some of the, the hints of that we find in like Philippians chapter two, where Paul says that, um, that Christ was made in likeness of men. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then in the betrayal story, when Judas Iscariot betrayed, betrayed Jesus, he had to indicate which of the group was Jesus by going up and greeting mm -hmm. Jesus. And uh, a lot of times in film or in art, 
uh, we'll, we'll see the disciples and then Jesus stands out. He's, he's dressed in white. He's glowing. Now, if that were truly historically the case, Judas could have said, the, the, guy in the, the glowing one, the guy yeah, six four over him. there. <laughs> yeah. But but the fact that he had to indicate which one may suggest that he he looked quite ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, the transfiguration, uh, the the gospel authors make a point of saying, and Jesus's clothes became dazzling white. Mm-hmm. Well, that's only worth mentioning if he wasn't dressing in dazzling white every single day. <laughs> uh, and so he he may have dressed and looked. Uh, rather ordinary. And then to me, one of the most important ones is in early Christianity, when critics of Christians would find fault with, uh, with Christianity and say things like, hey, if your hero was the son of God, why did he look so ordinary? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was apparently some memory that he looked like an ordinary person. And Christians responding to that would quote Isaiah 53 verse 2, uh, that he had no beauty, that we should desire him. And so early Christians had a memory, apparently, that, mm. that Jesus was a very ordinary-looking, uh, typical-looking human being. Mm. Now, to me, that's, that's interesting on two levels. Theologically, that's really meaningful because Jesus became human. The Son of God, the pre-existent Son of God, became human and knows fully what it's like to live a human life to have a veil of forgetfulness, to have to learn everything, to experience sickness and hunger and fatigue and all the things we deal with. That's really meaningful. And then second, from a historian's point of view, it's really interesting because if Jesus was a sort of typical looking uh, Eastern Mediterranean man, we have portraits and archeology span and things that give us some hints about what typical men look like at the mm-hmm. time of Jesus. So portraits that were painted uh, in Egypt and in Dura Europas in Syria and uh, that show Jewish men of the time of Jesus portray them as uh, having short, uh, dark, curly hair, a short, a short, dark beard, an olive brown complexion, and, um, and often dressing in just typical Roman attire with like a, a knee-length tunic, a, a, a knee-length cloak and sandals. Are, are you trying can you to describe in, Daniel? Can or? you get in close? <laughs> <laughs> Without the tunic, I think we've got just it saying. nailed. You're pretty close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, yeah, if, I, if, if we could uh, see some of these portraits, yeah, you'd see Daniel fits right in. So maybe we can get some of our audience's thoughts. Um, why might one's understanding of Jesus' physical appearance be important? Why might it be unimportant, do you think? So I, I can't help but wonder if, if how he, what he really looked like matters. It, it, it's how we connect with him. Um, we had an experience a couple of years ago. We had an opportunity to be in Paris right before Notre Dame burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. And there was an absolutely amazing portrait of Mary and the baby Jesus, but Mary and the baby Jesus were distinctly Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just gorgeously portrayed and it just exuded the spirit of Mary's love for the Christ child. But he was very clearly Asian, which is so different from what in our Judeo-Christian experience, what we see was so different, but it was just so moving. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, how that meant for all those people that were coming through that were of an Asian background to be able to connect with that mm-hmm. and, and feel that. And so I can't help but if it doesn't matter, but it, it's more about knowing who he is and connecting with him that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I had the same experiences 
uh, growing up. I mean, you've seen a lot of the, the artwork in our chapels and things like that. And just growing up, I remember all the artwork I saw, Jesus was white, God was white, Adam and Eve were white, angels were white. Um, and I find myself, I found myself asking sometimes, like, where am I in all of this? Uh, and it wasn't until I was about 30 years old till I saw a picture of an a angel with a dark skin like mine. And it was just such a moving uh, experience for me to see myself in heaven, as it were. And I fully recognize what you're saying because it offers people who perhaps don't often see themselves depicted in religious art. Like it helps them to see that they have a place in the kingdom of God. It helps them to relate to the Savior in a, in a different way. And I don't think the Asians coming through there saw Christ and actually thought he was Asian or anything like that or looked like that. But like you were saying, it can facilitate a kind of connection between them and the Savior that perhaps other artwork can't do. And that's a, one of the reasons I think that it's so important to have a diversity of religious art. Uh, to help a diversity of people relate to the Savior in different ways. And not just the Savior on, on every level of artwork, right? I mean, I think about, we talked about women a little bit and, and showing women angels. Why wouldn't there be women angels if we understand what angels really are, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I think not just angels, but how do we depict the Book of Mormon people? How do we depict these different areas? Mm -hmm. And how do we depict families and all these different things that are extremely important to the to the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and our doctrines? Mm -hmm. uh, we're an international church. And, and so therefore we have reason to have realistic pictures. And we can also reflect on, you know, how does that affect our relationship with one another? Yeah. You know, if Christ had darker skin, how might that affect how we look at people with darker skin? If Christ had lighter skin, how might that affect how I look at people with lighter skin? Um, just this idea that how we envision who is in heaven can also inform how we envision and treat people who, who are on earth. So this has been a great discussion on seeing Jesus. Maybe we can talk now about the Lord's keys. Yeah, this, this section, section 110, is extremely important regarding the keys of the priesthood. First of all, it's extremely important to understand that in verse 7, the Lord says, I have accepted this house. I mean, I can't imagine the joy that Joseph Smith must have felt when he recognized that, that this, in a sense, was good enough for the Lord, that he had done his part, he had received the revelation to build the house, and now it's done, and the Lord has accepted it. I just think so much excitement and so much joy. And we also see the importance of, of the endowment being poured out upon them. This is all kind of, in a sense, preliminary to these keys that we are going to receive. So in section two of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's the first one that we receive. Joseph Smith is being, going to be told that, that Elijah is going to come and that the children are going to be sealed to their fathers of this nature. But it is not until the temple dedication here that we actually receive these keys. This is significant because a lot of times we talk about how the keys of the priesthood were received by John the Baptist and by Peter, James, and John in 1829. And that's true, they were, but not all the keys were received at that point. In fact, one of the statements that I love by President Benson, he says the following. He says, why send Elijah? And this is in reference here to section 110, verse 13. And President Benson explains, because he holds the keys of the authority to administer in all of the ordinances of the priesthood or the sealing power. So said the prophet Joseph Smith, and he continues, the prophet Joseph said further that these keys were the revelations, ordinances, oracles, powers, and endowments of the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood and the kingdom of God on the earth. So Moses then comes and Moses reveals and gives to them, it says the keys of the gathering of Israel. And then Elias comes and commits unto them the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And then you have Elijah, the prophet, and verse 13, who was taken to heaven without tasting death, stood before us and said, behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord to come, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. 
Therefore, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands. So just a question for you. There's, there's a lot more that we could talk about regarding keys here. But what blessings specifically have you received through the keys that Elijah has restored? Okay, Ellie, por favor. Yo me siento muy contenta porque gracias a que los misioneros nos enseñaron de esto, mi esposo y yo pues somos conversos y estamos bien agradecidos. Y una de las bendiciones que hemos recibido de esas llaves es que pues cuando nos casamos, nos casamos en el templo eh, y fuimos sellados. Y nuestros hijos ya nacieron en el convenio y nos sentimos felices y también de la historia familiar, porque así podemos estar unidos con nuestros familiares. Perfecto, gracias, hermana. So, yo pienso que una de las bendiciones que hemos recibido muy grandes es el tener la oportunidad de poder hacer la obra genealógica por nuestros ancestros, de poder llevarles y darles la oportunidad a aquellas personas de bautizarnos por ellos y de esa misma forma poder regresar a la presencia de nuestro Padre Celestial. Entonces, a través de esas llaves que se restablecieron a través de Elías, el profeta, tenemos esa gran oportunidad de poder trabajar por ellos. Pienso yo que es una gran bendición que todos tenemos. In fact, in verse 3, the Lord says, if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Or in other words, if we didn't do this family history work, if we didn't have our hearts turned to our fathers, if we did not have that, and in this case, we're also talking about our fathers, our ancestors, the whole purpose of the earth would be wasted. Without the keys that Elijah gave in the Kirtland Temple, there would be no purpose of this earth. It, our, our lives would have been insignificant because there would be no ceiling, there'd be no eternal family. Sophia, again, ask you the question, why are the keys of ceiling? Why are these keys that Elijah restored? Why are these important in our day? So for me, something that like struck out would be temple work. And from personal experience, um, my grandma passed away five years ago and her name was accidentally removed from the church. But the First Presidency gave us like special permission to go get her baptized and confirmed for baptisms for the dead. And it was the coolest experience because I got to do that on my birthday with Bella. And for me, just that experience of temple work, because I knew my grandma and because I was close to her and I was with her while she was alive, those little experiences along with, you know, baptisms for the dead in general, just proved to me like, you can have that much more faith and like these things just testify that much more. I mean, sometimes we take these keys for granted, but the reality is many people in the world believe that we will be with our loved ones in the next life. But in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are given the authority for this to happen. This is real. And it can't happen without these keys. Final word, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Just one more thing to say on this. Uh, just to tie this uh, back into what we were talking about a few minutes ago about... Um, in the dedicatory prayer where, the, where Joseph understands that the saints aren't going to be perfect, that we have uh, mm -hmm. need to, to repent and be forgiven and come back to the house of the Lord. The, one of the wonderful things about this blessing of the sealing keys and the sealing of families and relationships forever is that so many of us experience lack of perfection in our relationships in this life. And when we contemplate this blessing, we see that tied up in it is this amazing promise of the Lord's healing, yeah. that his healing can come upon even our messed up relationships uh, if we will take our lives uh, to him. 
and that somehow in the eternities things are made right. And that is really wonderful and, and miraculous to contemplate. And so that's something that's very meaningful to me to think about with the blessings of these keys. Excellent, thanks. So this has been an excellent discussion on the Lord's keys. Um, thank you so much for your comments and, and your insights. Um, this was great, thanks. Mark, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for your fantastic insights. We really appreciate it. And thank you as well. We appreciate you being here in the studio. We appreciate your comments, your insights, your thoughts, your questions. It's been fantastic. And to those of you at home, thanks for sharing your thoughts and questions and insights with us via social media. Uh, we'd love to have you in the studio sometime with us, but if you can't join us, we hope you'll tune in next week for Come Follow Up. Thanks so much. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.